Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Andy Price to the podcast. Andy is Head of Politics at Sheffield Hallam University in England. His primary research area lies in political theory, particularly in ecology, environmentalism and new social movements, such as the Occupy movement. Andy has taught and researched in higher education for more than 15 years, previously held positions at St. Louis University in Madrid, Liverpool John Moores and Manchester Metropolitan. Andy is the author of Recovering Bookchin, an analysis and recovery of the work of the oft-neglected pioneering ecological thinker, Murray Bookchin. Well, thank you very much, Andy, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda. Uh, Thank you. It's great to be here. Great, great. So I came across your work and your writing, your research, uh, with a wonderful book, Recovering Bookchin, and uh, we'll talk about Murray Bookchin uh, later and hopefully in, 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 in great depth. Uh, fascinating thinker and a neglected one. Um, a great book. So, well, uh, thank you, Andy. Um, I'm I just wondering maybe if we can talk a little bit about your background and work. Yeah, well, I'm currently uh, I'm head of politics at Sheffield Hallam University, and I've been researching in the area of new social movements, uh, green political theory for the last ten or fifteen years. And it started really with a, with a PhD thesis on Murray Bookchin, which we'll probably come to later. But uh, as part of the wider sort of research agenda that I have, it's looking at, at sort of how grassroots movements, uh, what we might even call inverted commas radical movements, those movements at the fringes of society, and it's looking at those kind of movements and how they might push uh, for change, largely because, as we know, the, the, the systems, the political and economic systems that we've been familiar with over the last century or so seem to be under serious duress, uh, maybe even falling part, uh, apart before our eyes. So I have a focus on movements like the Occupy movement, uh, the Zapatistas in Mexico and movements from the 1960s and how they propose uh, alternatives to, to uh, systems that might in our present time be in some, in some trouble. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, uh, there's a lot of momentum now uh, around sustainability and these ideas uh, from various different uh, quarters. Um, what struck me uh, reading your book is how how many of these ideas, uh, the ecological ideas and critiques of of uh, I guess forms of capitalism um, and or, or or focus on on the ecological challenges. Uh, potential challenges down the way that Murray Bookchin wrote about uh, way, way back in time. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, Murray Bookchin and, you know, what role you think generally at a very general level he plays in the development of these ideas? Big question. (laughs) Sorry. Big question. Yeah, but a fascinating question as well. I mean, Murray Bookchin for me is a fascinating figure in the green movement as a whole, if you like, in the the world of ecology and environmentalism, a fascinating figure. Um, He emerges in the 1960s as a really key distinct thinker that was looking at both uh, radical politics in terms of the anarchist movement and how they could challenge society and what role anarchism as an ideology and a practice might have in the social movements of the 1960s and at the same time he was tying these this focus to the green agenda and he's one of the first thinkers to start to identify to the radical left 
and call attention for the radical left to the issue of environmental collapse. And as early as 1964, he's writing about about what we know now as the global um, uh, warming thesis or the climate change thesis, the idea of the warming planet. So he tied these things two together. One of the one of the first thinkers to do to do so tied uh, a radical social policy and practice to a green and emerging green agenda and he was very early um, very telling us very early that if we don't address the green agenda the crisis that will emanate from it will be far more problematic than any crisis that the marxist movement or the marxist leninist the communist movement predicted so for for murray butchin in the 1960s saying hey look we need to address the problems of present society of capitalism but the real crisis of capitalism won't come from economic problems or from class, it will come from the threat of ecological uh, collapse. And from this, from the 60s onwards to, to the early 2000s, he wrote a huge body of work trying to explain, one, how we got to the point of ecological crisis and ecological collapse, and two, how we might get out of it. And, and for that reason, I think he's a, he, he's a thinker and his work is a body of work well worth returning to to look for some answers to those, to those issues. Absolutely, absolutely. He covered a tremendous amount of ground, as you say, you know, anarchist thinkers, left wing Marxist ecologists, um, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of rich ideas and, 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 and kept asking these questions and moving through these ideas. And and in a sense, seeming, you know, he's like a dog with a bone. He would, you know, find shortcomings or question aspects of the ideas that he found uh and he he seemed uh, really willing to take on you know any comer in a sense you know that uh, one of the ideas that we, we talked about briefly was this idea you know about, about technology and so forth. He was already looking at this question and saying, well, is technology a good or a bad thing? And you know, there's a temptation in the air there was and, and and still is to say it's necessarily a bad thing. And and he he had a much more nuanced view of it. That's right. That's right. Uh, an interesting thing in that respect as well, because remember, he, his sort of working career, his writing career perfectly maps onto the emergence of green politics, of green political theory in the last quarter of the 20, 20th century, if you like. Um, as he's doing that, we know that as the, as the green movement emerges, we, there are narratives from time to time that emerge that, that, that state that the real problem with, uh, with society and the real reason we're moving towards ecological collapse is humanity itself. There was something wrong with humanity per se and with human technology and what we were doing to the planet. Well, Butchin would write extensively about the, what we are doing to the planet, the problems we're causing, but he never laid the blame at the feet of humanity as such. He laid the, uh, the blame at the feet squarely of the economic system we'd created, and that economic system was capitalism, or perhaps advanced capitalism. Yes, as he, yes. He would refer to himself, and, yes. and and by doing that, he introduced a little bit of nuance into into the green movement by saying, "Look, yes, you're right. Something's drastically wrong with the way we're currently constructing and building our societies, and it's having an impact on the on the on the environment." However, it is not just because there's too many of us. It's not just because there's something inherently and essentially wrong with, with humanity. It's the social systems we, uh, we create. And obviously then the, the consequence of that kind of claim is that there is something actually about humanity that can resolve the crisis. Yes, if, it's not, yes. you know, if it's not our essential nature that, that, that is causing the problem, that gives us agency to solve the problem. And that's one of the major contributions for me that, that Murray Butchin makes. He says, yes, there's a problem right now, but it doesn't always have to be that way. There's so much about what we've created, technology being one element of that. There's so much about what we've created as a society that is 
emancipatory. It's, yes. It can be revolutionary in helping us to solve the problem. Yes, I think that's fascinating. I want to talk in a moment about social ecology. I'm just interested in a, uh, an, another question that might be a bit, of, uh, uh, I would say, airy, but in the air. What's the connection, do you think, between green theory and green action and social action and social new social movements? You talked about the development of these ideas. Uh, you know, uh, you, you go in the bookshop, you see all the books and, you know, uh, anarchist theory or these different theories and things. And if it's not something that you necessarily uh, have a close familiarity with, you, you, you may just think, oh, you know, the ideas about, you know, uh, radical social movements, whatever. Is, is there an important connection? That's a great question. Generally, the relationship of theory uh, to practice in all sorts of social movements. But perhaps by looking at a quick, exam quick example, we can see the impact of, of theory. So as we've already said, the, the green movement and, and green political theory really emerges and takes shape and becomes what we know it as today in that last quarter of the 20th century. So from the 60s onwards and 70s onwards, it really does begin to take shape. As that's happening, as we move to the 1980s, there's a real schism, there's a break uh, there <clears throat> between, between Bookchin's version of ecology, and we might come to this later, but the deep ecologists, uh, movements that emerge in the United States first, like Earth First, uh, thinkers like Arnie Nace who argue that actually the environmental crisis will only ever be solved by somehow reducing humanity's impact on the planet. That's either by population reduction or by reducing our, our focus on ourselves as a, as a species that they're any different from any other species. And there's this, this, this real debate, real, real uh, discussion and, and lots of argument about whether it's about humanity and population or whether humanity and population are actually the answer to the problem. And, and at, at times, for people who don't know this kind of debate, you might think that it's just an academic matter. But that really does help shape our understanding of, of ecology, of, of what it means to be human in a global ecosystem. All of those things uh, eventually filter out from academic discussions and start to influence movements. Another great thinker we can think of, just to bring him in, in, in here uh, as a comparison, is someone like Lovelock. James Lovelock, who argues about about the Gaia hypothesis and, and one ecosystem in the 60s, early 70s. And at first, it doesn't really get much traction. But but now, if you if you look at the Green Movement, we all understand that somehow we're part of a global ecosystem. So the relationship of theory to practice in the first instance might not seem direct, but these ideas and these discussions absolutely filter out into how grassroots movements might approach the issue of sustainability, resources, resource depletion, and all of those of those different factors. Great, great. Now, you mentioned the question of agency and how, uh, you know, McBookchin's thinking uh, allows for agency and so forth. Uh, and I guess this is something, a critique of, of some of the environmental movements or, or just uh, something that you, 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 some people have observed that the, you know, a lot of uh, negativity uh, at times, you know, saying that we're doomed, the world is doomed, the planet is doomed and, and, and so forth. Um, and yet, uh, the, you know, uh, I, th I think there's a hint in Bookchin or, or more than that of, of developing a vision of the kind of society that you, 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 that, that you want, a, a society, a positive vision of what a society in balance ecologically would look like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we should say right at the outset that the, there is perhaps no thinker, uh, there are thinkers equal to him in their, in their opposition, but Bookchin matches anybody in terms of his opposition to centralised neoliberal capitalism. No doubt about it. You know, he sees that as the problem. However, at the same time, alongside that really searing critique of capitalism, there is this reconstructive agenda 
in Bookchin. I mean, he says he, his, his project really is to recover humanity, is to refine the, the, what it is that, that, that makes humanity distinct as a species, that gives us our consciousness. There is a real positive uh, focus on the potential of human society um, to resolve ecological crisis and build better societies, not just for... Uh, 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 the green agenda, if you like, but for the social agenda as well, to overcome inequalities, to make societies fairer. So there's a real focus on, on the potential of humanity in Bookchin, alongside that very, very strong critique of how wayward, how, how wrong we have it at the minute. And this is what makes him really useful. You know, there's this, this focus on recovering humanity. Uh, in terms of how he does that, it's all about recovering in the first instance what it is to be a citizen in a collective society. And, and you know, that takes us towards his social programme. Uh, his vision is to build a society from the bottom up that will allow his positive vision of humanity to flourish. Yes, yes, yes. Now, very quickly, I just wanted to talk about uh, social ecology um, and what, what, what that means and what you think the contribution of those ideas are. Uh, a big topic, but just get a, a, get a sense of that maybe before moving on. And, and what insights do you think it might have for us today? I mean, you, you made a distinction between the deep ecologists and you know, some of the important uh, and fiery debates that were happening at the time. What, what is the, do you think, what, what insights do you think social ecology have for us? Yeah, well, I think it goes it goes back to the previous point. If we can say the project is to recover humanity and to recover what Bookchin sees as the rich potential of humanity to to actually, and in his own terms, to actually become, and I quote, nature rendered self-conscious, you know, and that means for Bookchin that humanity can, can become the steward of nature as a whole and rationally and, and ecologically organise society and its relationship to the ecosystem in a much more positive way. If that's his overall aim, I think one of his greatest contributions is, is first, it's an idea, okay? There, well, let's say there are two contributions. The first one is an idea. It's a conceptual thing. The second one is a program built on that idea. And very briefly, the idea is that the concept of humanity dominating the natural world, which we know is part of the whole drive towards progress and and growth, the idea that we've dominated natural forces, that we've dominated those natural forces and built the very uh, rich and complex societies we have, that idea for Bookchin lies at the heart of all of our ecological problems. The idea that we can dominate the natural world is first erroneous, we can't, as we know, and we can see the backlash of trying to dominate it in the form of ecological crises. Um, and also, most importantly perhaps, is that concept of domination is a social creation it emerges between humans before we start to attempt to dominate the natural world and and that focus is for me is one of his central contributions because it it allows us as individual grassroots movements or a society as a whole to sit down and start to think about what our true place in the ecosystem is what our true relationship to the natural world is. And I think that's a really important project in sustainability and the sustainability agenda because we can have all the policies we like uh, created at global levels and local levels uh, about dealing with ecological problems, but unless we've really reconceptualized our true relationship uh, to the rest of the ecosystem, I think we're in trouble. So that's the first one. It's the idea. It's a, it's a contribution on the idea. The second contribution, I think, uh, from, from Bookchin is that Based on all of that, he then tries to build a program, a very local program that you can start to build today, that will allow people to start to realise uh, that 
idea, that notion that we have to rethink our relationship to the natural world. And that program he calls communalism, and it's about building uh, grassroots democracy, direct democracy in your area, in your local area today, in many different areas, to reintroduce people uh, to the notion that they have individual agency in collective bodies in addressing local issues like resource depletion, uh, local uh, ecological degradation, environmental degradation, and of course, decision-making in, in protecting those things going forward. So there's those two great contributions that come from social ecology. One, about a conceptual reframing of our position in the world, and two, an attempt to build a programme thereon. Yes, yes, and I'd like to move on at, uh, shortly to, to this programme and to uh, you know, the ideas that, that, that he had and, and maybe also just to uh, how, uh, how some of the grassroots and, and local uh, political movements that you we've seen recently, how they're doing, and 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 uh, I guess the question really there is 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 you know th th there is a lot of momentum around sustainability at the moment. You know we've got it from the UN, the SDGs, you've got corporations now are making big commitments, uh, governments uh, moving forwards, and, and and some less so. Um, you've got you know many many different actors. I'm wondering what you think is the potential role for grassroots type organisations, and has that been realised? Yeah, I think I think there is a role for them, and there is a role in again both in practice and, and in theory. So, so uh, theorists of grassroots movements like Butchin, I think, have a huge role to play, and their work has a huge role to play in connecting that sustainability agenda. That, that let's face it, uh, stems in large measure from large organisations, global organisations like the UN. It stems from corporations, and actually, you know, in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with that. But on their own, we could argue they're not enough and, and we have to somehow connect those kind of agendas to people's everyday lives. For, for many, many people, the sustainability agenda, the SDGs, uh, whatever or, you know, corporations do on sustainable growth, for many people, those things are as distant as many other political forms in their life. They're as distant as the European Union or as the United Nations. Therefore... Uh, in, for somebody like Butchin, a movement based on Butchin or, or movements similar to, to those based on, on communalism, it's about re-engaging citizens at the local level, in, local level in some of these ideas. And it's so important that the ideas, uh, the narrative of sustainability and the narrative of sustainable growth is actually, ex or people at the local level are actually exposed to those narratives. Because if they're not, I, I fear that any great, centralised sustainable growth agenda will fail to, to, to get traction. It will fall on deaf ears. And therefore, local gra grassroots movements that, that engage people in, in new attempts at, at, to take control of ecological issues and social issues are so important in making bringing those two things together, the people at the local level and the sustainability agenda. We'll say one other thing on that, you know, one other thing on, on the whole sustainability agenda. Somebody like Butchin, uh, would say, and Butchin famously said, that sustainable growth and that kind of environmental approach is is always going to be flawed by the fact that it takes place from, and it merges from within the heart of global capitalism and global corporatism. However, I think as we move forward into the 21st century and the ecological crisis becomes even more problematic, grassroots movements cannot reject uh, the sustainability agenda. They cannot reject reject those kind of initiatives that come from 
centralized large organizations like corporations or like uh, like NGOs we have to take them with us it's just the context in which we take those forward and that context for somebody like blockchain and for grassroots movements has to be from the bottom up as well as from the from the top from the center down from the top down yeah fascinating because it there still is quite a uh, a bit of binary thinking around this and, and people saying well you know they're the problem and things like that but i think extrapolating on you know bookchin's uh plural uh you know uh thinking and, and unwillingness to to you know to, to ha- focus on just one element of, of the problem that uh that kind of bringing together of different kinds of organizations and and, and as you say um particularly to the the the, the this more bottom-up approach which i you know, um, I guess arguably has had a kind of a sporadic uh, stop-go kind of uh, thing over the last uh, few decades. I mean, uh, culminating, I guess, in in, in, in the Occupy uh, movement to some extent. I'd be interested in get get your sense of how that's evolved. You know, in the 1960s, a lot of uh, uh, great successes. And, and uh, give me a, a little bit of an overview of what you think happened. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question, actually. When we look at sort of grassroots radical movements that emerge um, in protest against current inequalities, social and ecological inequalities, we often think that they just come and then they go and that's it. You know, they have their moment in the sun. But actually, there's a clear line connecting all of these movements from the 1960s up to the present day you know so so in the 1960s we've got the new social movements of, of feminism and the ecology movement and the community movement and they go on into the 1970s the green movement then emerges and, and th- we know for a fact that the green movement of the 1980s cannot exist without these earlier examples of new social movements of the 60s you know it develops on the back of those things it develops on all of the new knowledge that comes to us in the 1960s a little later on, we get the emergence of the alter globalization movement or the anti-corporate globalization movement, you know, things like the battle in Seattle, uh, the, the large protests around the world. And again, they come and then they go. And we look at it sometimes and we think, oh, well, that was just a moment. They didn't achieve anything. They didn't change the world. And in one sense, yes, we, we can say that. But they emerged because of the earlier green protest movements like the anti-roads movement in the UK, like Earth First. Uh, the the alter globalization movement emerges on the back of those borrows their tactics references them all the time and yes they come and go as well then we get to occupy and we think oh another example a disconnected separate example of a new social movement but if you looked at the occupy movement they were entirely based on on things that had happened in the alter globalization movement you know they picked up the same uh, tools. They they were referencing them. They they were taking the same approach to to neoliberal and to corporate globalization or whatever uh, uh, we want to call it. And again, I think the Occupy movement itself has come and gone. But but whatever emerges next, we will know that the Occupy movement will be one other node on that line, if you like, one other stop on that line that leads from the 1960s to the present day. All of these movements do borrow from each other, they they follow on from each other, and, and we should probably, when trying to think about their impact and their role in the sustainability agenda or in resolving the ecological crisis going forward, we should try and think of them as one continuum. You know, they're not separate movements that come and go, they're related to each other, and they're related to that uh, resistance to some of the problems of society that we've seen from, from the 1960s onwards. Fascinating. I'd, I'd be interested in coming back to that um, uh, that idea of them of, of you know them as one continuum, one connection. I'm just wondering what what influence do you think the Occupy movement had? Well, again, we we probably will be able to answer that question better when the next eruption 
of social protest comes because that's when we really get to see the influence of it. But one thing, one thing is for sure, uh, if we look at somewhere like Spain, where we know that the Occupy movement took off before it took off in New York or in London, there was a, a, almost a whole generation of young people exposed to a new set of demands, and those demands were direct involvement in decision-making, um, a move away from a centralised state that had let a lot of people down in Spain, high unemployment following the crisis, uh, low, low prospects for the future for many young people. And a lot of those people were exposed, young people particularly exposed to this kind of, of organising. Now, the fact, the fact is that life moves on in, in, in corporate, global, neoliberal capitalism, and it's hard to keep up that kind of momentum that the Occupy movement had to resist. But if you look at, if you look at movements and uh, um, alternative media that is out there today on the internet and in different parts of the world t talking about the ideas of resisting uh, corporate globalisation through uh, direct democratic means, they're absolutely linked and emerged from and have emerged from things like the Occupy movement. Um, you know, so there is a real impact. We often can only gauge its full impact a little later, but there is a real impact in, in organisations and, and radical groups who are now calling for more democratic control. Uh, they were certainly influenced by the Occupy movement as the Occupy movement was influenced by movements uh, prior to then. So it's there. The impact's there. It's not always as clear cut. It's not there on the surface, but it's there, and we'll, and we'll see going forward that, that it will have its place. Very interesting. Now, you mentioned the word protest, and that's often, uh, certainly we, we associate uh, that with, with some of these movements. But this this fundamental idea of a direct democracy is important, isn't it? And can you talk a little bit about Bookchin's concept of, I guess, his, his last thinking or his last, uh, towards the end of his life, the uh, his political project of communalism and this kind of social project and what that would look like, do you think, today? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question, and again, ties back to the previous point, perhaps. So for Bookchin, his final program, he called uh, communalism, and you know we can call it democratic confederalism. It's about establishing in local communities direct democracies that bring the individual back into the idea of being a citizen, i.e. involved in, in, uh, in decision-making. So that's the classical concept of citizenship, you know, involved in direct democratic decision-making. Now, Bookchin, in this overall program, said there were two individual facets to the overall programme of building this new democratic society. Uh, the first one was what he called the minimum programme, and the second was the maximum programme. Now, just to explain that, the maximum programme is, of course, for Bookchin, and he saw this as entirely feasible, is the complete remaking of society along global lines, along these new directly democratic forms. <coughs> Excuse me. And he argued that, you know, that can be achieved by building this de democratic confederalism. And that's the maximum ultimate aim. However, he was realistic. And again, tying back to the previous things we've said about Occupy, that thing won't happen overnight. That maximum program can't be achieved overnight. So the minimum program for Bookchin was just to start building whatever we could at the grassroots level, uh, groups, social groups, food co-ops, whatever they might be, along directly democratic cooperative forms to start building them now. Um, uh, which we can do, you know, we, anybody can do in their local area. They can set up local uh, food production units. They can set up local um, um, allotments, whatever it is. We start doing those things now. Ultimately, you'd want to set up a democratic decision-making forum that takes control of local issues. And that minimum program for Bookchin is really important because actually in that minimum program, our aim isn't to overthrow capitalism because, as we know, that's that's 
fairly absurd and, and impossible to do along those lines. Our aim, rather, at, at, in that minimum stage, in that initial stage, is to transform the individuals involved. So Bookchin says the first target of any movement like this, the first target isn't global capitalism or isn't corporate, corporate capitalism. It's actually the individuals themselves involved in the movement. So he argues that people, if they get involved in, in cooperative, direct, democratic forms of organisation, they're transformed by it. You know, nobody enters into these movements, Bookchin tells us, uh, uh, and, and emerges the same person. They're transformed by the experience of cooperation and citizenship. His, his theory is that the more people do this, the more they'll want to do it. So it's almost like a reschooling of, of citizens. It's a reschooling of what it is to be a citizen. And that minimum program is the first thing we should do. In, in many ways, Bookchin's saying, forget now, for the time being, about trying to overthrow capitalism on a global scale, because, you know, that's some of the mistakes that previous social movements have made and it creates another huge centralized organization be it an army or a party to try and achieve that we need to sort of forget that for now what we need to do is just work at, at re-schooling people in the process of citizenship so start direct democratic groups in your local area in many different areas in many different facets eventually grow according to butchin to take over issues at the local council level whatever it might be um, and that's our primary aim to just start exposing ourselves to, to what it is to be a citizen. And just to bring it back to the previous point, that's exactly what Occupy did. It's exactly what they did. They just got people involved in talking about issues in the first instance. They you know, they were never going to overthrow capitalism from Zuccotti Park or from Puerta del Sol in Madrid, but they, they were there to expose the people involved and people watching to these new ideas and discussions. Very interesting, very interesting. Now, you do hear people say, well, Occupy, they, they, you know, that's seen as a failed project by some, uh, by many. And, and I'm wondering about the kind of process of decision making and the way in which grassroots work at this very granular level and, and this, you know, direct democracy and, and people taking part in decision making and so forth, which inevitably takes time. And, uh, and, you know, there are challenges. Is there a clear, do you think, model of how these kind of organizations can make decisions? Well, it's fascinating. I, I spent uh, a couple of weeks in Puerta del Sol when the Indignados, which was the, the precursor to Occupy, first emerged in 2011. And I, and I studied the organisation of this camp. They set up a camp for four weeks and it was largely young people who set up a camp in protest to say enough already, you know, to say that we can't continue to live as young people in post-financial crisis Spain without serious reform. And what did they do? Well, they basically set up this camp that, that split all facets of life into different committees. So there was a committee for uh, food, there was a committee for childcare, there was a committee for uh, policy generation, there was a committee for, uh, for organising the library, for reading groups. There was all of these different committees and they spent their entire day discussing what kind of society they wanted and alongside it, going back to the idea of this maximum and minimum programme, how they're going to organise this camp that they were all there uh, living in. And, and all they did all day, and it was a four-week, it was a short four-week experiment, but what they did all day was show themselves and everybody involved and the countless thousands of people who would watch this movement, who came down to observe the movement, to show that people could formulate policy from the bottom up, that people could organise things from the bottom up, that there were discussions not taking place in the mainstream media or not taking place in, in society at large. There were discussions that need to be had that can be generated from the bottom up. And it was a great example. And it, then it happened again in, in, in uh, London and in New York and in many other cities around the world. It was a great example of, 
of an agenda and a narrative being generated from the bottom up and having real impacts on on mainstream society. I mean, look, we know now, don't we, this, this idea of the 1% versus the 99% generated from that movement. Lots of discussions in Spain around, around politics generate from that movement, even whole parties like, uh, like uh, Podemos, not exactly 100% based on the Occupy movement, but given influence uh, by these kind of, of, of settings of new narratives and new agendas. And I think that's what's important with these movements. They emerge, they put things on the table that weren't on the table before, and they contribute to the generation of alternative narratives that in time uh, grow stronger and lead to further uh, groups and protests. Right, right. And how healthy are they now, do you think? The, the, the what? I mean, <laughs> very big question here again, but the kind of state of, of grassroots, uh, you know, they're, they're obviously a big question. They're distributed, you know, around the world. There are so many different issues. Um, and, and I guess linked to that is this question, and, and maybe it's getting closer to the maximalist uh, version of Bookchin's thinking, but, you know, how do they emerge or coalesce, you know, single identity or single issue groups who, you know, let's say effectively work in a, a grassroots level and, and, and do bring people in and spend a lot of time thinking about these issues and, and make progress. And yet they have got a very specific agenda. And, um, you know, how do they all coalesce? Mm. Well, that's the great question, isn't it? The million dollar question, if you like. Um, one thing we would say about that, if we were to say, OK, how healthy is something like Occupy now? I think we might be asking the wrong question. Because the next movement that emerges will and should be, you know, it should be different. It yes, should. yes. Sorry, I didn't mean uh, Occupy per se. Yeah. I meant that the, the thinking and best kind of exemplars of great grassroots, uh, you know, social movements. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, whatever emerges next should be different and it should have a different form. It should reflect what the, 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 the very pressing issues that we are we are facing today. But you only have to look at at the theory around these movements that has been emerging, not just in the last few years since Occupy, but it's been emerging uh, from the ultra-globalisation movement onwards. If we think, and it might bring us back to our discussion of technology, if we think about about um, the spread of global communications technology, the development of one global consciousness, if you like, through things like Facebook, Twitter, other forms of organisation, Never before have we had such a rich possibility that movements that are very different and address very different local concerns around the world can communicate with each other, can share ideas, can actually coalesce around a more general framework. You know, that very, that very um, thing that, that, that would be required to bring all of these things together, a framework of how everyone fits into this globally. Very difficult to generate what that will be that everyone will agree on, but never before have we had the means to do it. And, you know, thinkers like Hart and Negri, John Holloway, uh, thinkers around uh, around um, a different type of globalisation have been arguing this for a long time, that we're in a position where, where we've got the means, the technological means, like we've never had before, to bring these groups together. Now, these groups will always be different and, uh, because they're facing different concerns. But as Bookchin said as early as the, as the 1960s, what unites all of these movements is their one opposition to the centralised nature of neoliberal capitalism, you know, the atomization that goes on, the separation of individuals and citizens away from each other that goes on under neo, uh, neoliberal um, capitalism. So perhaps technologically speaking, in terms of that rich development that Butchin identified, that rich potentiality in humanity, we've never been in a better position. Against that, we can also say 
the forces that movements like this feel they are up against, so the forces interested in maintaining global capitalism, have also never been as powerful too. So that tension is always is always going to be there, um, and and we just have to keep an eye on movements as they emerge to see what indications we have of where that will will move to. Yes, very interesting. So what's next then, do you think, for Bookchin's ideas? You know, he's such a neglected thinker, as you say, um, and uh, yet he was so prophetic and uh, he was relentlessly asking questions and uh, identifying, you know, deep problems and uh, suggesting, you know, new social models and, uh, you know, uh, where is his thinking now, do you think, uh, going? I mean, in terms of the the influence, I mean, you've looked in depth in, you know, your book about, you know, uh, trying to distinguish the critiques of his ideas from his, you know, some of the ad hominem uh, uh, attacks on him and trying to see, you know, what were the core, what was, and and ask questions about the core of his ideas. there seems to be more interest in his, his his ideas now. Yes, yeah, I think there is. And to answer the question, what next? I think there are two things to think about in terms of what next. There's a what next in terms of his ideas and theory, and there's a what next in terms of his practice. Uh, you know, in terms of actually building this communalist, directly democratic society. But first, on the ideas, uh, as you as you mentioned, I think now more than ever. Bookchin's ideas can be useful not just to grassroots radical movements, but also to anybody involved in sustainability. And it's this idea I I referred to earlier, this idea of reconceptualizing human society's relationship to the natural world. And whether that relationship is antagonistic, has to be antagonistic, or is something else. Because as as I said earlier, you know, there, there is a sense across society that we've escaped somehow from the natural world by dominating natural forces, by harnessing them and building the societies we have. For Butchin, that's the, the real kernel of the problem. That's where we have to return to, to reconceptualise the notion that we somehow have to compete with a harsh, stingy nature. I think that's really important. It's really important as well for, uh, for, for uh, selling if you like, for want of a better word, the sustainability agenda to everyday people, to people who, who might not be exposed to it um, um, on a day-to-day basis. It's for, so for the state sustainability agenda, I think it's important that we return to this notion of humanity's place in the natural world. Um, and uh, I think that's a contribution in and of itself. And as you mentioned, perhaps that contribution's not been um, uh, allowed to flourish in the past because of, of uh, a lot of problems around Murray Butchin's reputation uh, that, that I discuss in the book. There was a lot of ad hominem attacks on him in the 1980s and, ni- and, and, and 1980s and 90s from other parts of the ecology movement. I hope that's all been um, uh, left behind now and we can move on and look at his ideas. Secondly, in terms of practice, I think it's going to be really important that organisations and groups pick up these ideas and try them and see what happens and see what happens in terms of what form they take, whether they're successful or not. And it's probably worth mentioning at this point that there is an organisation, there is a group that has picked up his ideas and are using it today to organise, um, very much organise their societies. And it's the Kurdish resistance, it's the Kurds of Rojava, the region in Kurdistan that are fighting, have been fighting for the last few years, they've been fighting Daesh, Islamic State, and they're a movement for Kurdish independence. Now, that, that movement is based in large measure on a version of Butchin's ideas, on a version of Butchin's democratic confederalism. Um, the leader of the movement actually read Butchin's ideas in prison in Turkey, and this became, they, they got 
they gain traction. They actually are part of how they organise their societies, how they organise their resistance, and they've been, you know, we know that their their resistance to Daesh has has been successful, as we've seen even this week. Now, there's lots of, of, of things that have happened around that, the relationship to global politics, the relationship of the US to these movements, all of those things are there, and the, the movements aren't a pure version of, of, of Murray Bookchin's ideas of communalism, but they are absolutely informed by it. They absolutely use Murray's ideas and uh, Bookchin's ideas, uh, and they take their own shape in their own particular um, context and their needs, and that's a great example of how ideas can actually have a real effect in the world uh, and can be put into practice. I think... We need to keep eyes, our eyes on movements like that and other movements that emerge that will, will emerge and try similar democratic, confederal, directly democratic um, means. And now perhaps is the time uh, that we can do that with Murray Bookchin's ideas. Great, great. There's a project, Andy. Um, great project. Thank you so much for sharing uh, all of your insights, the work you've done and, and helping us to understand some of these really important uh, issues. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.